Blog Talk Radio. Today on a special edition of Backroom Politics, we're live from American University, the campus in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This morning we're going to talk about the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. We're also going to talk about the nuclear option vote. They're going to change the filibuster rules, which makes Congressman Happy and Bob Hines ecstatic and the general state of politics in Washington, D.C. Again, did I mention we're live from American University in Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good morning out there in Radio Land. It is not Tuesday. This is a special edition of Backroom Politics Live from the campus of American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, joining me as they do normally on every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello. How are you? I wanted to suggest that, uh, that this is way too early. I, I believe the phrase, good morning, is an oxymoron. Well, well, and my you, my wife and I made a 57-year wedding. Don't hurry me. I'm, <laughs> I'm old, and I, need, I take time. We, we, we were married for 57 years, and the secret was we didn't talk to each other before 10 o'clock in the morning. So keep that in mind. <laughs> to, my, to my left also, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. How are you? And good to see this wonderful crowd of young people here today listening to us and hopefully asking lots of good questions. Yes, absolutely. And behind him, he, she is the former general counsel for the Maritime Administration appointed by President Barack Obama. She's the former general counsel of the House Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She is the Honorable uh, Denise Crap. Hi, Denise. Good morning. Good morning, Justin. And down the row a little bit, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is Washington longtime insider and politico. He is Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. You got to talk into the mic, Carl. It's very nice to be here at American University. Very nice to be here. At there American we go. University. Now we got good sound. And finally. He is the uh, former Undersecretary of Commerce who has served under last count four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, and a very handsome and distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He's the Honorable Alan Moore. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Justin. I noticed and hello, said, Eagles. Hello, Eagles. Yeah. Wow, this is going to be good. Uh, and I noticed that Alan's sitting all the way far from me because that way he can definitely fact check me. Hey, uh, back, I mean, on a serious subject, first of all, we want to thank American University for hosting us this morning. This is a great opportunity to talk to students. But uh, this morning, uh, today on November uh, 22nd, it is the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in uh, Daly Plaza in Dallas, Texas. Uh, a lot of us 
remember the visuals that came out of that, Walter Cronkite uh, announcing that the president had died, uh, the, the Zabruder films, uh, and we've all seen the follow-ups to the conspiracy theories and everything. But I, th I thought today we would talk about, you know, what exactly, you know, what we remember from that day and also what we remember about the legacy of John F. Kennedy and was there one. A lot of people today think, you know, he wasn't the greatest president. He was charismatic. Camelot was full existence. But was he truly the great president that everybody may have created him to be? Uh, Carl, I want to start with you. You actually worked with then-Senator Kennedy uh, during the presidential campaign of 1960. What do you remember about President Kennedy real briefly? Well, brief. I'm going to be brief. I, I told some stories to some friends of mine as we were going to the uh, dinner of the, of the uh, Vietnam Veteran Memorial Fund. It took me 25 minutes. I, I will be much briefer. <laughs> first of all, um, I met Senator Kennedy for the first time in 1957. I was in Washington. I'm from Baltimore. I was in Washington doing an internship for my college. For college. Um, I went to see some of his staff to talk about politics and how, how we could revive the Democratic Party in Vermont. Uh, I had my book, The Profiles and Courage, with me. Senator Kennedy came out, greeted me, signed the book, walked back into his office. Um, the next time that I, I saw him, uh, I was called one afternoon by my uh, boss, the Democratic State Chairman of Maryland, who was also Secretary of State, and he said, uh, uh, I want you to get in your car and come to Annapolis right away. And uh, I didn't ask him any questions. I said, yes, sir, I'll do it. I was a 23-year-old uh, person at that point. I got my car, went, to, went to, down to uh, Annapolis, uh, parked in the Amoco station, went across the back, the back uh, way to get into the governor's mansion, was taken up to a room. The door opened. There was a governor. Secretary of State, and Senator Kennedy, Larry O'Brien, and uh, one other person. Um, uh, he had come to Maryland to file uh, his application. Now, Carl, how, how, long, how long did you work with Senator Kennedy through the primary? And then you actually worked with him as president as well, didn't no, you? No, What happened is, is that when my boss, who was Secretary of State, couldn't go to an event, he would, he would call me and say, um, I want you to go to the Eastern Shore. Senator Kennedy's coming in by helicopter. You and the National Committee men, committee woman, please greet him when he gets off the helicopter. And then you'll be on the podium with him at St. John's College. So he got off the, uh, the helicopter. It was right after the West Virginia primary. We presented him with a Baltimore Sun uh, article that showed the voting numbers, which he hadn't seen. And uh, then we all went to Washington College where I sat on the stage behind him. And it was interesting to see how his, his gyrations, his, his movements and all that. Um, then uh, another situation, uh, my boss called me and said, go to the Montgomery County. You'll meet Senator Kennedy at the door. There's a luncheon, Democratic, uh, the Democratic Club. Take him around to, to see meet all the people. So we went around and I had done this with candidates in my years in Vermont and elsewhere and, and um, I, I like to keep candidates moving. So at one point I, I kind of um, was trying to 
kind of urge him to go talk to some people next to the four women that he was talking to. And uh, <clears throat> as I tried to kind of urge him, I hit something, and I didn't know what it was, but his hand came back and pushed my hand away. And he looked at me as, you know, with a very angry look on his face. Uh, then I realized he had a, he had a very bad back. And uh, I, know, I, I realized that it was a ring that he, he wore uh, to, to, to keep people from... Did he forgive you for... Bumping into him and all that. Did he forgive you for hitting him? Well, uh, I took him up to the podium and uh, sat him down. I said, I'll be right here to take you back out to your car. And uh, he, by that time, he, he smiled at me and said, thank you. And then when he came out, came back, and I took him out to the car, he turned around and he said, I really want to thank you for staying with me and introducing me to all these people. You were a big help. Um, <clears throat> he was a magnificent person. He was young. He was dashing. He was, he was very thin. Uh, he, had, he had more energy than, than um, I had at, at 23 at that point. And um, he was handsome, and, and everyone loved him. Well, Carl, I, one, one story about... Uh, when Carl, hold on real quick, because I, I want to get some other thoughts here real quick for this ahead. segment. Is, uh, you know, Congressman Al, you know, you, you worked in Congress, and you always hear, you know, the aura and the stigma of President Kennedy is, is usually around the halls of Washington a lot. When, what, was President's legacy, what was President Kennedy's legacy in your mind, uh, as you see it? Well, I'm part of a generation that was really turned on to politics by John Kennedy. Uh, it, it's interesting to note that of this panel, most of us were alive when he was alive, but not all of us. Some of us were too young for that. And so there's a, there's a sense in which if you were alive when Kennedy was alive, he's part of your reality. If you grew up after he was assassinated, he's part of history. Uh, and I think that uh, he was just so vital. Let me make a, a comment on, on whether he was a good president or not. I think that historians should really try and consider Kennedy Johnson. So much of what Lyndon Johnson did, he had been started by John Kennedy. Whether Kennedy could have got it through or not, he wasn't the incredible legislative tactician that Lyndon Johnson was. But together, I, I, I have some question whether Johnson could have initiated some of these, those ideas because he wasn't a wildly imaginative man. So together, Lyndon Johnson and, and, Ted Ken, and JFK really, I think, accomplished some very significant things together. Well, speaking of significant things, Alan Moore, you actually worked in the Peace Corps, which was started by then Sir, Sergeant Shriver on a mandate by President Kennedy. Is, is that one of the legacies that kind of falls by the wayside when looking at President Kennedy? You know, we all talk about Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev at the UN, uh, and then, of course, you know, a, a somber day like today. But, for example, Peace Corps, why does that kind of fall away from being part of Kennedy's legacy? Well, I don't part? know that it does. Uh, again, it's, there's an age thing. Um, a lot of young people who think about the Peace Corps think about the Peace Corps for what they know about it, that it's this opportunity to go and serve. Mm -hmm. they, they don't necessarily 
reflect that it was part of the legacy of, of John Kennedy. For those of us, I served in the 1960s in the Bolivian Andes. Um, I saw Kennedy at age 15 when he was campaigning in 1960, and I was a sophomore in college the day he was killed. So I have some vivid memories uh, uh, of all of that. Later uh, in, uh, in that decade, I decided to go into the Peace Corps. Now, in fairness, to think about the Peace Corps and me, the Vietnam War was, in full, was, was getting into full blossom in 1966 when I graduated from college. The draft was in place. One had to do something. You could enlist, you could run, or you could get one of various kinds of deferments, and the Peace Corps was a deferment. I was interested in the Peace Corps. I wanted to serve. I, I had been inspired by President Kennedy. I had been shocked by his death, as we, as we all were, who lived, lived through that time. Um, but I also had the war and the draft hanging over my head. And, and uh, people will debate forever whether uh, President Kennedy would have prosecuted the war the way Lyndon Johnson did, we will never know the answer to that. There's uh, some evidence on both sides, and it's not compelling uh, in either direction. But so, uh, ironically, the Peace Corps for me was in some ways an alternative to going into draft. the military. Yeah. I, I am intrigued with Al's notion of, of, of looking at them together. Lyndon Johnson has a remarkable legacy, Medicare, civil rights, voting rights, uh, Medicaid, um, some of that was, was initiated by President Kennedy, and, and he failed, for example, on Medicare. He had votes. He lost. It didn't happen. Um, and, and would Johnson have done those things without him? Probably not. They were not the core of, of his argument to be the candidate for president. So it's, it's sort of this, you know, it's how history works. You build on whatever you follow upon, and... Uh, uh, I don't. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to know where where, where the credit lies because Johnson really did make that stuff happen. And, and Denise, oh, go ahead, Denise. Well, it, for me, what Kennedy represents is somebody who broke a glass ceiling. Um, before him, all presidents of the United States were Protestant men, and I'm a Catholic. And people forget that he broke a huge glass ceiling. It, it's not your traditional one saying as, as a female issue. No, it was a religious issue. I mean. For a Catholic to be elected president of the United States was incredibly important. I mean, people kept saying, well, are you going to report to the Pope? Are you, are you going to be able to have differing opinions? And the answer is yes. So he opened up doors that people did not have prior to him. Well, so, he, so he broke the stained glass ceiling. Oh, he, he broke a huge stained glass. Really? Really, Alan? <laughs> oh, wow. That's, it's going to be one of those shows. Hey, um, but Denise, also, you know, when we... We don't know our generation, okay, those of us in our, in our 40s-ish, uh, that, that knew President Kennedy and were around for Camelot, but we hear a lot of people who were around for both Kennedy and now for Barack Obama. When Barack Obama first jumped on the scene, there was a lot of similarity. There was an energy. Look at him and Michelle and the kids. There's Camelot reborn, redo. Is, are we starting to see now that President Obama, in his second term, may have lost some of that love of Camelot, uh, that some of that may have gone away, or even the fact that maybe um, it's, 
there was never a Camelot to begin with with Obama the way there was with Kennedy? Oh, there was a Camelot. <laughs> I can remember uh, working for the campaign, um, for the first uh, campaign for Obama, and it was amazing because people were saying, you know, wait a second, we could possibly have, and that was an important election, we could have either the first female president or we could have the first African-American president. And to be in this country and to say, hey, wait a second, we can have something that nobody else has had before, that was an amazing, amazing time. Now, recognizing what the American population looks like, yes, is it as, as rosy as it was in the first couple of years? No, but that's never going to happen, regardless if you're a Democrat or Republican. By the time you reach your second administration, and Bob Hines, interesting. Bob Hines, when, when we look at that day back in November of uh, 1963, uh, a lot of the images that we capture were media-based images. Uh, the picture of WFAA's live coverage from the hotel, uh, the picture of Walter Cronkite uh, in his tearful announcement after it had been flashed over by AP. Uh, was President Kennedy truly the first media-driven president, in your opinion? Uh, probably, I would say yes, for this reason, because he was young, he was vital, he was handsome, he was smart, he was interesting to listen to. His wife was an attractive woman. He had beautiful young kids. He was, a, he was an all-American super guy, uh, and he was very, very popular. I think it's fair to say that I think Al hit a very good point, as, as Alan Mitt said, that you put what Kennedy started, what Johnson finished, uh, it was a very successful time for America. It was a very interesting time. I, too, am a Catholic, and it was very interesting. My first election was 1960, and it was an interesting time. Big changes were going on, and... Kennedy was just one of those guys who everybody said, oh, my God, this guy's wonderful. Uh, and it almost didn't make any difference to a lot of people if he was real conservative or real liberal, anything. What, he was a moderate, and he, was a, he was sort of in the middle, but he was a clear Democrat, but he wasn't a hard-edged guy. Like uh, some of the people who we have seen in the past... Uh, Recently, there's a lot of hard-edged guys. Right. He, he worked so much better with people. Everybody, it seemed a lot of people, a lot of people liked him for that. And I think fundamentally, I think his likability and his, his wit, his quickness of his mind, and his just aura about him was something that really helped America a great deal. Uh, or Congressman Al, first, then we'll go to questions. I'd just like to, to add that just as Roosevelt was probably the first president to really know how to use radio, uh, it, was, it was not so much that Kennedy was made for television, it was that Kennedy's people and he understood the power of it and the way they used it. And then you move ahead to Obama, and it's how he used the, the, that stuff that you and I can't figure out. You know, the, the, inter, the Internet and how's all of tweet, that. How's your tweeter system? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For me, Twitter is, is the high end of an audio yeah. system. You know. <laughs> Any, anyway, my, that, that was my point. Justin? Yeah, good, Carl. Uh, we, we've left out one thing, and part of it is the legacy that he, he spoke about when he spoke at American University. And uh, uh, he, he was a person who was looking to bring peace to the world. 
um, it was a little unknown fact that in, uh, in 1963, he had reached out to Castro to try to have conversations with him and bring him to the table. He had reached out to the North Vietnamese to try to, to, to bring them to the table. He really, truly wanted to see a peaceful world. Right. Uh, his, his, the um, uh, arms negotiations with Castro and the lessening of uh, uh, weapons in, in both countries, that was he and, and uh, Ambassador Avril Harriman, right. former governor of New York. Well, so, we've got a question from the uh, floor. Go ahead. Oh, question back here, I think. Pointed for a question, I guess. No? Oh, go ahead. You're live in the air. Millions of people are about to hear you. Don't be Hello. nervous. Uh, my name is Danielle Sisk, and I'm from California. I have a question about Kennedy's domestic relations. I know we were talking a lot about his international outreach. And I just had a question. I know that the civil rights movement was hot and heavy during this time as well. And if someone could offer me some rationale as to why he didn't focus more domestically as opposed to internationally during this time. Uh, Alan? Could you repeat the question really quickly and, and talk close to the mic? Sorry. Basically, what I'd like to know is what was Kennedy's rationale for not focusing so domestically and kind of, I don't know, almost ignoring the issues at home while he was so interested in extending our hand internationally? I get, I get you. I, I, just from hearing what I heard from you, and by the way, it's a, it's a good question that a lot of people should be asking. Uh, the question is, why didn't, you know, we talk about Kennedy's focus internationally. We talk about him in Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, he didn't focus a lot at home. I'm guessing that civil rights would be one of the issues that he should have spent more time on focusing at home. Is that your question? As opposed to focusing on Russia, Cuba, and Turkey, etc. Uh, Alan, you want to take that one? Uh, yeah. First of all, I think that in fairness to, to President Kennedy, he devoted an enormous amount of time and political capital uh, on the subject of, of civil rights. We were, during his presidency, in, in the, 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 the sort of front end of true activism in the South, which was explosive and volatile, and the South at the time was democratic, and that they, they tended to help, they, I mean, they helped Put, uh, put President Kennedy I I into office, he had to send uh, troops in to, to integrate schools. These were tough, tough decisions because it was raw uh, emotional anger down in the South. People's lives were at risk and so on. Now, having said that, it was President Johnson who was able to, to figure out how to get the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act Past. President Kennedy laid some of the groundwork for that, but he was really, uh, he didn't have the, the, the knowledge, the credibility in the Congress to make it happen. What Johnson had was knowledge, credibility, and, if you will, a martyred president that helped the mood we need to do this. At the time Johnson did it, though, he said, we're probably saying goodbye to the South as a, as a party for the Democrats for a very long time. With regard to, to, to foreign affairs, presidents have to deal with 
what's happening in the world. They have to respond to events, and then they also try to carve out some areas of their own. We could have a long debate here about, about uh, how great or, uh, he was or was not uh, internationally. He was, uh, in his first meeting with, with the then president of uh, uh, the, the head of the Soviet Union, a man named Nikita Khrushchev, Khrushchev ate his lunch, and that's pretty well accepted uh, history. He came home chastened. The, the prime minister of Britain of that meeting said, I think for the first time President Kennedy has met someone who, he, who did not succumb to his charm. Now, having said that, Kennedy was a smart guy, right. and, and, and he learned. But, but he, and he was faced with, uh, with this missile crisis that may well have grown out of this unfortunate first meeting with Khrushchev. Congressman Al? Well, bottom line, I think that Kennedy was not perfect. And there's a tendency, I think, in retrospect to make him a little more perfect than he was. Uh, His meeting with Khrushchev did not go well. And frankly, he was really forced by events to take the actions he did on civil rights. The South was starting to come apart. He had to do something. It, you always had the impression that he, he wished that would go away and somebody else could deal with it later. But what he did was he teed it up for Lyndon Johnson. And what an unusual person to finally do the civil rights. This was a Texas congressman who had voted against every civil rights bill when he was a senator. Uh, he, he was very conservative about those kinds of things. But I was in the chamber when he gave his speech that, was, that, 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 that led to his civil rights effort. And I remember him grabbing the podium and leaning forward and saying, we shall overcome. And I don't think there was a person in that room that didn't believe he meant it. I've never understood the conversion. I don't know why Kennedy, who would be more likely to be converted, being a northern liberal, but it was it was Johnson that did that, and uh, and Kennedy kind of reluctantly teed it up. But there was nothing reluctant about Lyndon Johnson in following through. Going down, the, we've got a couple of minutes in the segment before we go to break. But real quickly, uh, down the down the roll, when we look at President Kennedy, had President Kennedy gotten a second term, would we have looked at issues like civil rights, the Vietnam War? Would we have looked at uh, domestic issues such as the space race? Would we have looked at those as him continuing? Or even better, would, would Kennedy have gotten reelected? Carl? Just very briefly, uh, first of all, civil rights. They, the Kennedy brothers were not into civil rights as the country was. Bobby came to it first because he had a, a person who he worked with who was very active in the civil rights movement. In 1960, when uh, Martin Luther King was put in jail, Bobby said, we've got to do something about this. I think I'm going to call the judge. And uh, his, his aide said, Senator, you can't, or Bobby, you can't do that. You're a lawyer. It's against the code of justice to, to do this. He called the judge, and he convinced the judge to let Bobby Kennedy out of jail. And Martin yeah. Luther King out of jail, and uh, and as yeah. far as no, no, I, 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 that's a great story. And, and Alan, real quickly, we got one, we got one minute left. 
I, I, it, it's interesting to reflect on, on how heroes are made um, because politicians tend to be pragmatic, but sometimes they find themselves through circumstance, events, um, uh, making history. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, as, as we've said, sort of followed on the, the, the start that, that Kennedy made. He probably would not have done it on his own. This is also the, this week is the 150th anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, and we often think about President Abraham Lincoln as the guy who who ended slavery. Um, but we forget that that we could have avoided the Civil War if the South had gone along with an offer that Lincoln made, which was, okay, you Southern states, you can keep your slaves, but you can't leave the Union. And you have to not insist that new states become slave states. That was a, that was a, a Lincoln offer. Right. The South said no. We had a war that, <laughs> that killed 2% of America uh, and did untold other damage. And, uh, and, and Lincoln uh, became known as the great emancipator and, and the one who ended right. slavery, which is true. All right, we've got to go to break here. When we come back, we're going to pick up the energy a little bit. We're going to talk about the Senate vote yesterday to change the filibuster rules, invoking the nuclear option. This is Backroom Politics Live from American University in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. live at American University in Washington, D.C. This is a special edition of Backroom Politics. I mean, now we're going to pick up the energy a little bit. You know, talking about President Kennedy on the solemn day, it's hard to follow that up, but the Senate has given us something great to talk about. So we're going to pick up the energy and talk about the nuclear option. Uh, Alan Moore, as being our resident fact checker, what is the nuclear option in like a minute or less? The... uh the, the so-called nuclear option, which was uh, invoked yesterday, um, was a unilateral, by a simple majority, change in Senate rules. Um, this is uh, a, a pretty big deal. It's not a massive deal. We've been moving in this direction, but it's a, it's a big deal when, in the history of the Senate, um, you have, in the middle of a session, one party deciding to change the rules of the game that have evolved over 200 plus years um, to make it possible for a simple majority to uh, a majority of votes to do certain things in the Senate. Not everything in the Senate, but this becomes its own precedent for possible uh, further additional change. Congressman Al? I uh, have a have to admit to an incredible bias. Uh, I, I, I agreed with the fellow who said that uh, you must realize that the Republicans are merely the opposition. The enemy is the Senate. The Senate is probably the least democratic, democratic institution on the face of the earth. It prides itself on giving the minority more power than any other one. But they, they give so much that the minority basically stands in the way of majority rule. And it seems to me any democratic institution should be able to drive to a, to a vote that will show you who the majority is. And if you build rules into it that prevent you from driving it to a vote and finding out what the majority is, I think it's just fundamentally undemocratic. So I cheered. I've been saying for years, get rid of I remember one time saying, get rid of the, 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 the thing. And, and Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska went through the roof. I mean, there was a hole in the ceiling, and he, he, he didn't come down for three days. So there are those who disagree with me. 
I'm shocked you grabbed the mic away from Bob the way you did. That was actually kind of hostile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give it back to him, Al. Uh, Bob Hines. That's the way Democrats act. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bob Hines. Uh, yeah. Senator, me... Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat in Virginia, yeah. uh, tells CNN yesterday that uh, the nuclear option actually helps the Hill. Do you agree? Well... Because you've you know, not been a fan of the filibuster for longer than no, I've been alive. The Founding Fathers created the Congress very different bodies. Six years in the Senate, so you can be more statesmanlike. Maybe. Maybe. Hmm. Very questionable. On the other side, you've got the House. Larger by four times. Uh, probably much more representative of the country as a whole than the Senate is. But it's deliberately that way. One of the founding fathers said that the house is like the cup of coffee, hot. You pour a little bit of it out. The saucer is the Senate to cool things down. It's a very important lesson to learn. Now, I, I tend to disagree. I'm not... I'm a Republican, and right now, if I were in the Senate, I would be angry because the Democrats have done this to me. Now, on the other hand, if in 2014, if God willing that the creek don't rise, Republicans may very well win the Senate. Then I'll think it's a wonderful idea. <laughs> See? Now, that's the problem with the thing. The, you know, the filibuster rule was set up so that uncertain in, in that the, the cooling system of the Senate... To keep, the hot, to keep the hot water of the, of the house a little cooler. The idea was to make sure that it wasn't just a bare majority, but a significant majority that made the final decision to send the legislation from the, from the, from the Senate, from the House, to the Senate, and then through the Senate over to the President for his signature. And I think that's not a bad idea. Now, I don't have any uh, strong feeling myself, one way or another. I, have, I never worked in the Senate. I was only in the, in the, well, let's go to somebody in the people's who, house. Well, let's go to somebody in the Senate, though. Alan Moore, you spent a lot of time as a staffer in the Senate. Nuclear options seems like on the front, or at least in the periphery, it might be a good idea. Does this actually hurt or help the Senate's way or at least tradition of doing business? Well, it, 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 is, it is a different way. It changes the way of doing business, and there will be unintended consequences. We don't really know what those are. For the moment, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of bad feeling. Let me just make a couple of comments, though, about what, what uh, Al said about being undemocratic. Of course the Senate is undemocratic. It was constructed that way, as Bob points out. Every state gets two senators. Montana gets two. California gets two. So uh, on its face, it's undemocratic. Now, what you've got with the, the new rule, just to, to give you a couple of numbers here, it means that 51 senators can, can, can do new things that they couldn't do before. If you, if you look at the, the lowest uh, populated states, that means that 20% of the people, theoretically, could decide these things. That would be like saying California and Texas get to decide because the populations are about the same. It's complicated. And when you, un, when, when you change long-standing tradition 
and I'm not saying there wasn't new reason. We've been moving towards this increasingly, and this is a sad statement about the Senate, the measure of how, you, of how much you oppose an executive appointee, a cabinet member, for example, is are you willing to filibuster it or not rather than just oppose it? This was a it was this started with Reagan when the Democrats began to resist some of his appointees. It and then it continued to escalate. It escalated with with Clinton. It escalated with George W. Bush, and it has continued to escalate. Something needed to be done. I wish they could have found a way, as they have when the, the so-called nuclear option has been discussed in the past, most particularly in 2005, when the Senate majority with President Bush thought about invoking this kind of thing, and they worked out an agreement. When you don't work out an agreement and you just crush the other side after long-established history, you do a, create hard feelings, big deal, who cares? But you change things in unintended ways. And just as an example, so now it, 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 what, there's a difference between executive branch appointees who serve at the pleasure of the president and lifetime judges. And, and I'm more sympathetic on the on the executive branch appointees than lifetime judges. Well, Adam, and, I, and I think that there are a lot of other people who are, too. If there are issues you feel passionately about, and let's just talk about, for one, abortion rights. But, but, uh, you run the risk. You run the risk of having, in the future, people who disagree fundamentally with you, and you, and you, and you don't have a way to slow that down. Alan, let me jump in here real quick, though. I mean, when we, when we talk about, you know, whether it's abortion or appointing a judge to the District of Columbia, I mean, you know, when anybody thinks about the filibuster, we think of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Anybody here in the audience seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington? Clap. Clap. It's an audio. You can't raise your hand. It's on radio. Okay. We remember, we remember Jimmy Stewart standing up there for all those hours, his voice raspy. That's what we think is a traditional filibuster. But, you know, we haven't talked about the fact of that there are other Senate rules that were not touched by this, i.e. holds, cloatures. Those moves were not addressed in this. Is this more of a Band-Aid or a knee-jerk reaction in the Senate, you being a Senate staffer? I mean, well, it seems odd. It's a, it, 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 it is a step that had not been taken before, and, it, and, it, and the question is, where does this lead? They, that what they said was that a majority can close off debate. You can still have extended debate. You can still have a filibuster. It's just that to close off the debate, you now only need a simple majority rather than the 60-vote threshold. That's what this new rule did, and it affects executive branch employees and judges for federal courts below the Supreme Court. Well, <laughs> who, who here thinks that when we get a Supreme Court nominee that a minority chooses to filibuster under the old 60-vote rule that the majority who supports it won't invoke a, uh, an addition to this new precedent to say, okay, a simple majority. Is that a horrible thing? It's just a different thing. Good. And it's the unintended consequences that we, that we, can't, we can't see 
But remember this conversation this day, sometime down the line, when, when, we're, when you've got a Supreme Court uh, justice nomination that you really aren't very comfortable with. Denise Crap. Let me go with Denise. Okay. I, I think we're about to bleed into holds, and I think we're about to bleed into a couple of the others. Um, one of the, the things I remembered about being a staffer on the Hill was you know, when we negotiated from the House side, we negotiated and we negotiated with the Senate, and we would try to negotiate with the committee, uh, the chairs of the committees, and you'd think that the chairs of those, the Senate committees had the power. Well, they did up to the point where one person, and that's when I, when I realized it, a certain senator, he or she, could completely dictate what a piece of legislation looked like. And that was amazing to me to learn that you could go one person could pull 100 people. And that's why I knew we were heading in this direction of, of doing the, the 51 versus the 60, because they had to stop the one or the two that were holding up everything. Do I think that this is going to make it better? No, I, I don't. I, I think um, it's going to be a payback, and I've already lived through payback before. I mean, I was in the minority as a Democrat, then we went to the majority, and then we went into the minority, and that's what's about to happen. Instead of improving the process, both sides have now devolved to the point where it's, just, it's nothing more than payback. Carl Tubin. One of the things that a president has to do is make appointments to judgeships and make appointments to his administration. And so many, some of his... Uh, people who he has uh, nominated have, have not been able to get the 60 vote uh, clearance to be, uh, to be uh, confirmed. And from that standpoint, if you want to, you need, I, I thought this was needed so that the president could put more people in places in government where, where there are no people at this point. And, uh, and, and the judges, I think that's very important to get the judges in the federal court system uh, where there are vacancies. Bob Hines, you can see how difficult this, this issue is. When you start changing the rules, you give the, you, you, you in effect, anger the minority, obviously. Uh, it, then that gives them the chance the next time around when they become the majority to do something to you and it's, it escalates. One of the problems that we have, Congress today, is that there are so few negotiations going on because everybody is so locked down. When you change rules like this to make it easier to lock things down and make it my way or the highway, it probably, long term, is a bad thing. I'm not sure about one situation or another, but I do know this, on the broad, and the broad relationships in Congress, they're getting worse every day, and things like this only exacerbate that problem. Alan Moore. Yeah, eight years ago when the, uh, when the Republicans were considering doing this, uh, President Obama, then, then in the Senate, uh, Vice President Biden, then in the Senate, and Harry Reid, uh, then the minority leader, all spoke very passionately against doing this because it was a unilateral power move by the, by the party in power to change the rules in the middle of the game. You'll be able to see the quotes if... If, if you want them, I'm sure you'll be seeing them next year in, uh, in, in political advertising. Today, a few weeks ago, we had the dean of the house, a man named John Dingle, with whom Al served and who is a very close friend of Al's, um, 57 years in the, in, the, uh, in the Senate, in the House, longest serving member, who said 
today the only body up here in the Congress that's working, that's doing any legislating, is the Senate. Now that's interesting because the House has uh, these majority rules where the majority gets to control. What happens in the Senate when you have to have a supermajority to do big things? You have to reach across the aisle. You have to reach a political accommodation with the other side. I, I would, I'm here to say that had there been some, some a more effective reaching across the aisle when Obamacare was, was first passed, we would very well have a different law that we would be working together to try to implement rather than a law that was passed with, with zero Republican support. And Republicans don't march in lockstep. They represent a broad band of the society just the way Democrats do. And, and, and when you have, a, if you will, uh, a majority willing to trample on, uh, on the minority, watch out. Congressman, now I'm going to give you the last word for this segment. I think that you have to be very careful if you start giving out reasons why the majority shouldn't be allowed to do its job. In a democracy, if you start getting frightened of the majority doing its job, then I think you're on the way down. This is a case in which the Senate has been abusing its, uh, its power, uh, not only with the, with the uh, filibuster, but with the holes and a whole bunch of silly crap that, uh, that senators give themselves. Uh, and it doesn't function like a democratic uh, uh, arm of government. Uh, I, I just, I don't want to prolong it. I just think be careful when people start saying, well, we've got to be afraid of the majority in a democracy. All right. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word for this segment real quick. When we come back, it's free-for-all time. We're going to talk about how the state of politics in Washington, D.C. really works. And guess what, kids? You're ours now. So this is Backroom Politics Live from the main campus at American University of Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties.
and we're back live here at the main campus of American University in Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, We're going to go free-for-all now. Uh, Since this is a special edition, since we were kind enough by the faculty to be invited here to the main campus of AU, uh, we're talking to several political science students from all over the country, and actually, except we have one international student uh, from the Far East who uh, is joining us. But this is the time where we get to walk around and engage some of the students and talk about the current state of politics in Washington. But I'm going to start real quickly by asking a question. Uh, Bob Hines, you've been in this town how many years? Uh, 1964. How long ago is that? So that's going on 40 years ago yeah. in this town. 50. 50. 50, unfortunately. Georgia Southern Eagles, baby. That's a good academic education. Uh, Bob Mines, you've been here 50 years. In 50 years, in almost a half century of being in D.C., how much have you seen the dynamics of politics on a daily basis change in Washington? It has changed uh, beyond I could have ever imagined. Um, We have so much more money in the system. We have so much more special interest groups on both sides, on all sides, with great with a lot of money. Uh, we have uh, organizations who are uh, pitted against each other, who are constantly haranguing and you know dealing with the members of the Congress, urging them to do one thing or another. And we have uh, just all kinds of of media that gets into everybody's world and tells them what they ought to know. And we have another problem. It's, I call it uh, the, the cable networks, news networks. Uh, we have a system, uh, when I was younger, uh, where we had three or four networks, and they were relatively, with people like John Chancellor and, and, and uh, Walter Cronkite and Peter Jennings, you had relatively objective... Some other people they've never heard of. That's all. <laughs> these are all people who were dead, I'm telling you. But these are the kind of people who... They, they, they gave you a little bit more perspective than just one point of view. The cable networks are either way on the right or way on the left. So, Bob, you're, you're basically saying right now that some of the current disdain, the demagoguery, some of the, uh, the acidity of politics that's happening right now in D.C., a lot of that can be blamed on the 24-hour news cycle, everybody trying to get that one soundbite? I think some of it can be blamed on it, yes. I think, I think the amount of money that is rolling around is another problem. Denise Krepp, real quick. Well, I personally think it's because people don't want to work together. I mean, Justice, we had a show on Tuesday where I was called a socialist and a communist merely for being a Democrat. And, and I kept thinking, yeah. Wait a minute, you're not? I'm not. Oh, my oh. goodness, I'm not. Right. But it, it, it's when you can look at somebody with a straight face and say, because you're a Democrat, you're a socialist and a communist. By the way, they're two different things. Um, it, it, that, that's appalling. You need to be actually talking about issues, not name-calling. Well, I want, I want to talk to Carl real quickly before. First of all, the person who accused her of, of being this was the head of the Tea Party in Oregon. And uh, so, you know, that's part of the part of the problem. The other part is, is a lot of this fracturing came with Speaker Ginrich when he got to be Speaker. He, he put out a, a, an edict to Republican offices that Democratic lobbyists should not be allowed into Republican, Republican offices. It was called the K Street Project, only used Republicans. 
and that that started that started a lot of different things. Oh, I think we could go back further than that. So probably, uh, probably. Carl, but, come on. Probably, and the other the other thing is committees used to work together, Republicans and Democrats. They would travel together. They would get to know each other, and and when you get to know somebody, it's 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 a lot harder to to criticize them. When Hillary Clinton came to uh, Washington, she visited 99 Senate offices and spoke to 99 senators and shared her philosophy, heard their philosophy, and she was able to work together. We don't have that today. Well, Carl, I, I do want to point out, I mean, I mean, for everything that, you know, we, we vilify on the right, Newt Gingrich as being the death of somewhat of civility, the same could be same for Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi took a very strong, hard tactic. Absolutely, but she only followed up what Gingrich started. So okay. what, what Carl said is absolutely right. Gingrich is responsible for changing the nature of the House, and Nancy Pelosi is responsible for not changing it back. Well, we've got a question right now. Hold on. What's your name and where are you from? My name is Brennan Thompson, and I'm from Rochester, New York. And my question is, what do you think the future of political parties is, and especially in regards to the, the two-party system? Good question. Very good question. Uh, I'm going to start with Congressman Al for the Democrats. Uh, I have lived through the death of both parties at least twice. You have, they have a tough election, and everyone says, oh, there they go, there they go. Well, they're still around. Uh, I, I believe the Tea Party is, uh, we don't know it yet, but it's on, the, it's, on its way out. Uh, the, the, at some point, both the Republicans and the Democrats are going to realize that civility is going to do more. The Republicans, I think, are going to take a bath, not, uh, not completely in the House because there are so many gerrymandered districts. There are only 40 seats that are in play come the next election because of gerrymandering. But I think that, uh, that the last election showed that this, this acrimonious approach of theirs isn't going to work. Now, the, the thing is, the Democrats have been quiet. But I can remember when the Democrats did the same thing. And if, they have, if they're not learning from the Republicans and they go back to being uh, really sharp, uh, then they're going to find it's bad. But I think they will probably not do that and they will survive. Uh, we go Bob Hines for the Republicans. I rather expect that the Republican Party is uh, right now learning a rather interesting lesson. And that is, if you do the same thing trying to defund Obamacare, which could pass the House, but couldn't pass the Senate, and even if it passed the Senate, the President would veto it. If you do it three or four times, all you're doing is proving you're insane, fundamentally. I think they've learned something. Uh, it's, interesting that, uh, it's interesting that they're changing their mindset. They're, being more, more, they're much more quiet now. Even the crazy Tea Party people are being a little bit more pushed down. I think Al is right. I think the extremists, I think, are, have been taught a lesson. And I think that's good. I think it's needed. I think the party needs that because obviously we have, we have elected a bunch of people in our party who are, and it's, it's because of the citizens. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the folks out there. Maybe they're learning a little bit that you cannot just decide to come up to Capitol Hill and say, it's my way or the highway. 
I'm the only person who's right. You've got to do what I want to do. That doesn't work in a system where you have to have a consensus. Slowly but surely, we may learn that. Let's hope so, from my standpoint. We've got another question from the audience. What's your name? Where are you from? I'm P.T. Philbin, and I'm from Trumbull, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, <laughs> go rich white people. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Um, so we've been talking a lot about the filibuster and just dirty politics in general, and we've been talking about how there's a lot of it on both sides, and frankly, I think that's um, kind of bipartisan word I can't say on the radio. Um, because the total number of filibusters from both the from both the Clinton and George Bush White House two two-term presidents has not does not total up to the number of to the number of action to the number of filibusters taken against executive nominees for the Obama White House with a total of 16 so far whereas with Bush it was i believe 9 no i mean Clinton it was 9 and Bush it was 7 can't it be said at this point that it's more that it's more fault falls on the Republicans at this point for the actions taken against the Obama administration by that example alone. Wow. Uh, I'm going to let fact checker Alan Moore take this one. Go ahead, Alan. Um, it, it is certainly true that, that the numbers have continued to increase. There's, there's a, and, and, and I don't, as, as they increase over time, does that make the, the later people more culpable than the earlier people? Perhaps. The problem is that people are doing it. The other thing, though, if you're going to look at the data, is look at the question of which party was in power at the time that the resistance occurred. Which party was in power in the Senate? If, if you have the same party in power, which is what we've had in, in, uh, under President Obama, the minority has only the opportunity to resist. If you have a different party in power, they don't bring, them up, bring up the names in the first place. So you need to, if, if, you, if you were trying to do an apples for apples comparison, you need to add that element into it. The, the, the point though is not, okay, it's, they did it more, therefore it's their fault. That, that, was, that, that created the tipping point. The, 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 the unfortunate thing is they they, they failed to come up with some other kind of middle ground. Um, and now we're at this place of changing the rules and dealing with unintended consequences. Denise Krapp. I, I think the, uh, the example is, is wonderful because you're, you're talking about a Republican House and a Democratic president, whereas in Clinton you had a Democratic president and you had a Republican House. Uh, with Newt Gingrich, and um, he may have changed, and he did change a lot of the uh, the way the House structure worked, but he still actually worked with President Clinton. I mean, we still had some major pieces of legislation passed, and you passed because people reached compromise. And when you take such a dogmatic stand where if it's if it's not my way, then it's the highway, then that prevents legislation from happening. And unfortunately, we keep seeing this over and over and over again. And I'm, going to, I, I'm kind of thinking, well, when are they going to learn that you can't take a stand? You, you can't merely say it's my way or the highway and get what you want because you're Con never going to get what you want. Congressman Al. That way. I just wanted to say that I thought the uh, young gentleman was quite acute in his observations, and I hope that the public... About, the about our panel being old, rich, white guys? Well... <laughs> <laughs> 
about I you money. I thought... oh, your, oh, your state. Oh, I thought you were talking about our panel. We get that confused all the time. Go ahead. I believe he was saying that the Republicans were more at fault on this than the Democrats, and I think that's absolutely true. <laughs> we have another question for the floor. What's your name? Where are you from? Hi, my name is Nabila Fasihi, and I'm from Northern Virginia. Uh, my question is to each of you what you guys think about the national popular vote plan in comparison to the electoral college we are using right now. Oh, we're going deep. Oh, wow. Question is, Al, Congressman, how do you feel about the, uh, the national popular vote plan versus using the traditional, uh, using the traditional uh, electoral college procedure? Is that, is that about right? Okay. <coughs> Congressman Al, we'll go down the line. I'm all for it. Uh, I I just don't understand the Electoral College. It's a a piece of almost fictitious stuff that gets in the way. Uh, I don't see what's wrong with having, uh, you know, the majority rule. Now, there are some pretty good arguments against that in terms of big states, small states, and so forth. And so there are some steps you could take between total abolishment of the Electoral College and what we, and, uh, and what we have no, today. When you, when you talk about using the national popular vote, that, that pretty much in today's even media market and money-driven campaigns, aren't you alienating states like Wyoming, Montana, uh, New Hampshire, and the Dakotas? Nobody's going to want to go there. There's no money and there's no real popular vote. That's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the basic ar- arguments against total abolition. And there are some ways that you can uh, you can moderate, so you don't have to go the whole way. But I'd go the I, I would say it's less fair the way we do it than if you changed it and uh, set up the situation for Montana. Bob Hines and Alan Moore than Denise. Well, I would be very careful about changing it for the reasons we've just talked about, because literally uh, you'd have uh, half a dozen, almost you only need more than about ten states to get a majority of the electoral vote, you know, in effect. I think it's better that uh, every state and every, every viewpoint and everything else gets weighed in, its, in the election much more if you have a system where each state says this is what our vote is rather than have a, uh, just a popular election. I, I, I'm not sure as big and as wide as, as various in, in, in outlooks and attitudes that we have in this country, and it's going to continue that way. There's no problem with that, but we ought to be able to work. One of the things that the Founding Fathers tried to set up was a government that had to work with different points of view, having to come together, find a solution, and then go forward. And if we make it too easy for the the 51% to win every time, that's not going to work long term. We're going to have revolution in the streets. Alan Moore? Yeah, this is a tough one because we've had a couple of times in our history where the, the, the winner of a presidential election did not have uh, the most popular votes, and that really does sort of fly into the face of, of, of democracy. So it's tempting to think, okay, let's throw out the old system and create something new. We could do that, and, and as, as these guys say, all of the focus in elections would be where the people are. And... and uh, and most of the country would just be largely ignored. There's a little bit of that anyway. You don't see a president spending a lot, presidential candidates spending a lot of time in Wyoming in order to get the three electoral votes from Wyoming. Um, but, uh, uh, and while we're at it, if, we're, if we were going to change, um, 
uh, I think we just, it, it's one of those things where you better be careful because unless you're convinced it's broken, you may not want to fix it because here again, you would almost certainly run into some, some unintended consequences. And it has been rare in our history where the, uh, the, the, the winner didn't actually get a majority. Um, and so, again, tread carefully. We have another question for the okay. floor. Hey, Justin, do you mind oh. if I ask? Oh, yeah, please. I'm sorry, Denise. I'm all for it. And I'm all for it because I want to see the majority of the people get represented. And I'm going to add a tagger on this. I live in the District of Columbia. I don't have the same rights as somebody from Virginia and Maryland. And I am tired of people in small, actually large states with small populations telling me that I cannot have the same rights as somebody as Maryland, Virginia. And if this is how I get my rights, right. But, but Denise, I, I mean, going off that aspect... As, no, we still wouldn't let you vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but Denise, going off of that statement, though, I mean, I, I too, a resident of the District of Columbia, I live on Capitol Hill, uh, sit there and I don't have that same vote, but is changing the Electoral College or the popular vote process, is that necessarily going to be any different? For, they're still going to vote us down for giving us a voter statehood. Justin, I think that if we can show some states that they do not have and should not have the clout over us, then yes, we should be doing these things. Because let me give you one example. I have two children in the DC public school systems. I got an email when the government shut down from the chancellor saying, it's okay, we've determined that they are essential personnel. So for the federal government to have the ability have any impact on my children on a daily basis of whether or not the school is going to close because the government can't fund itself is ridiculous. So yes, change the system. Alan, more real quick. Yeah, I'm just thinking if we, if we, if we were to change the system, which we could do, I don't think it would be the end of the world, um, that would raise serious fundamental questions about the United States Senate itself, which we talked about before. Why should Wyoming get two votes the same as California? And uh, it, it, this can, you got to be careful when you start messing around with stuff that's been around a long time. It's messy. It works. There are unintended consequences. And if it's not truly broke, be careful what you Bob think. Bob Hines, 10 seconds. Just think, if you had two House of Representatives, one called the Senate, one called the House, how would that be? be useless. We wouldn't get anything done. But Congressman Al would like you to have, chime in. You have just seen the fundamental difference between Republicans and Democrats. What is Republicans that? can always find reasons not to do something, and Democrats usually can't find any reason not to do something. And, and, and we just expressed it in Actually, Al, Al, Democrats just can't roll it out properly. Oh, oh too soon? Come on. We're right. Really? <laughs> that, that was pretty good. Didn't you get what he said? I mean, I hate, I hate it, but he—that was one of the a knife in the front for Obama. We got a question for the audience here. Uh, what's your name? Where are you from? Hi, my name is Mary Mize, and I'm from Tampa Bay, Florida. My first question was Go is <laughs> a little bit. My first question is really—you've um, all have already answered it. Was is politics really now still about the people or is it really about the money? And you all have kind of hashed that out already. But the second part of my question was, within that idea, why is it so hard to pass gun control legislation? Why is it so hard to what? Why is it so hard to pass gun control legislation? Why is, it so, why is gun control legislation eluding us, Congressman? That's, that's for the panel. I'm going to start with Carl Tubin. Well, unfortunately... There's something called the NRA, and they have a, uh, a lockstep on 
a lot of congressional districts. Now, people feel that they aren't as strong as they used to be, and with all the shootings and, and, and killings going on in our schools, we have, have had, I live in Montgomery County, we've had uh, some incidents here in the past few days, uh, should really make a tidal wave for gun control, but we haven't seen it. It's unfortunate, it, it, but, you know, we don't teach people about guns. We don't talk enough about it. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, it, it stalls when it's brought up. Uh, go to Alan Moore, or I'm sorry, Congressman Al. Go ahead. I think the thing that gets overlooked uh, constantly in this is that the NRA, uh, yes, it spends a lot of money on lobbying. Yes, it spends a lot of money on other things. But the real power of the NRA is its membership. It's, it's when you go to a town meeting and you find that the NRA is turned out and they're sitting there all with their bandoleros on or what have you and telling you that if you vote against uh, their right to have guns, uh, they're going to do all kinds of things to you and your children and into the fourth generation. Uh, they are scary, scary people. And, and it's back home where I think most members uh, get beat up pretty good and come back and, and, and support the NRA. Alan Moore. I just want to re reinforce uh, what Al says. I mean, here's a guy who stood for election eight times, and, 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 and he knows. It's not – whenever you hear people say, oh, it's this, this group with money or that group with money, money – doesn't elect people. Votes elect people. And, and, and what Al is saying is absolutely true. There are people who can influence voters, but the, the thing about the, the gun owners of America is they are single-issue people in many instances, and they are passionate, and they will go to the polls, they will volunteer, they'll get on the phone, they'll knock on doors, they'll hand out uh, literature, and so on. So, so don't be seduced by the notion that it's pure money. And also, in terms of the, big, the, the broader question about money versus how do you get things done in government, we do a lot in government. What we do, mostly, is we redistribute income. We tax from people who, who have some level of ability to pay, and then we spend it on stuff, including a lot of people who are middle class, particularly in Social Security and Medicare, um, and, and we spend a lot of money on poor people. Do we spend enough? That's a different question. Do we tax enough? Different question. But, but we have a system that, that, that stumbling as it is, um, does, uh, does an enormous amount of good for a lot of people and tries to balance out uh, how to how to how much to tax from whom to tax and 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 how to spend and that's at the heart of what we're do what of our current problems because we're we're spending more than we're getting in and nobody wants to tackle that question so we get sidelined on issues that people are emotional about. hold that, hold that thought or, congressman hold just, that just, okay go ahead congressman real quick just a quick wrap up <clears throat> if people didn't vote the way they vote this wouldn't be a problem. Well, I want to go to this question because I want to bring up a topic that I think is going to also circle this. But let's go to your question real quick. What's your name? Where are you 
Uh, my name is Ben Pittler, and I'm from a wicked small town in Connecticut. A wicked small town in yeah. Connecticut? That's half of Connecticut. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah. But um, my question is, uh, given the current state of gridlock and, and back and forth we've seen in uh, Washington, um, I've heard a lot about, or not a lot, but a little bit about uh, this relationship between Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. And, I mean, Chris Matthews wrote a book on it. I haven't read the book, but... Um, I guess that was some sort of golden era where, you know, th they kind of kept it together. I was wondering if uh, any of you had a opinion on that. Well, Congressman Al, you actually worked, his, com his question was, uh, he, you know, we talk about Newt Gingrich, or I'm sorry, we talk about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and the relationship they had. They call it the great relationship. Uh, that was the golden age of bipartisanship, compromise, and things got done. Is that about accurate? Uh, brought up Chris Matthews' book, uh, Tip and the Gipper. Uh, you didn't read it, but you served under Tip O'Neill for part of your congressional term. Uh, you saw the interaction between Tip and the Republicans. You saw the interaction between him and the White House. Is there a lesson to be learned? Was that our golden age of bipartisanship? I want to, to uh, yield to Bob to tell his story about uh, Tip and Gerald Ford coming back from the oh. call, and then give me the mic back. I want to make a comment on it. I'm so glad I moderate this show. Bob. Oh. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're having fun up there. Uh, there is, uh, this, is, this story was told to me by both participants of the story. Jerry Ford was the minority leader, and Tip O'Neill was the whip. That means the number two leader in the, the Democrats when Jerry was the, uh, my boss was the senior Republican. They went out, they were playing golf one day. They played around the golf. They stopped, had a drink in there at the pub in the, in the uh, clubhouse. They were walking out to, the, to get in their cars. They each had a driver assigned to them who was a Secret Service agent, you know, because they were leadership of the house. And they're walking out, and uh, Jerry says to, uh, 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 Jerry says to Tip, uh, pardon me, Tip says to Jerry, uh, what are you doing tonight, Jerry? He says, well, I've got some friends in from Grand Rapids, which is his hometown. Our kids and their kids are all in town for the summer, and they're all going to be at the house, and the, the families are going to get together and have a good, nice cookout in the backyard, and I'm going to make some steaks. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. He said, oh, that's great. That's a wonderful thing. And Jerry said to Tip O'Neill, he said, Tip, what are you going to do? He said, well, Jerry, I'm going to get in my car. I'm going back to the Capitol Hill, go in my office, and figure out a way to blank you tomorrow on the floor of the house. <laughs> True story. And blank, he means both F of them, both of them grabbed each other, hugged each other, and loved each other. And they were able, for years, to work out situations where the Democrats got what they had to get done, because they were in the majority, but Tip and the, and the Democratic leadership never, never, in effect, knocked the Republicans to, to death. They always made sure that everybody was, was, was collegial and working together. It didn't always work, but it worked most of the time, as Al will tell you. Congressman Al. Now, what I, the point I want to make is this didn't start with Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. Uh, there have been times back in the history where there were some very violent things that went on in Congress, including including fistfights and, uh, and a person caned to the, to the floor and so forth. But in recent, you know, in, in this 
century, or the, the, the last century, I should say. Essentially, there has been a very civil uh, relationship between the two parties. And uh, you, uh, you find that you make a lot, you find some Republicans who you like better to have a drink with than some Democrats, you know. I mean, you know, you find a good Democrat. <laughs> yeah, right. And I tell good stories when I'm drinking. But uh, so, so the answer to the question is, yes, there was a long, long period in which they behaved themselves like, uh, like grown-ups. And it has only been since Newt Gingrich that they started behaving like bullies. And they've managed to change party and still act like bullies and change parties back and still act like bullies. And so the question is, how are we going to stop that? And I don't Al, quickly, have an answer Are there that. bullies on both sides? What? There are bullies on both sides. Absolutely. Is, I mean, let me ask you this question. I know a lot of people call Newt Gingrich a bully during his term as speaker. Would you call him a bully? Sure. Would you call Nancy Pelosi a bully? Sure. Why? For well, both they, they both ran the things the same way. They, were, they ran the House out of the Speaker's office. They... Uh, Gingrich totally ignored the committee system, and Pelosi followed his, uh, his model. Uh, so I think they're both responsible for it. Denise Krepp, you actually served in the House under Speaker Pelosi, or you, or you were a staffer on the Hill uh, in the House under Speaker Pelosi. Newt Gingrich a bully or no? Yes. Nancy Pelosi, bully or no? Yes. What was your interaction with Nancy Pelosi? Okay, keep in mind, I start... Okay. I was an intern during the last years of the Democratic heyday. So I was an intern in uh, about 91, 92, 93. Right. Okay? So that was the tail end of about a 45-year span of the Democrats controlling the House. Um, so I, I saw it then. And then it flipped. And I joined the House Homeland Security Committee in 2005 when we were in the minority. And we, we couldn't get anything done. I mean, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So when it This is under Gingrich Yeah, it was under, it was under Gingrich. And then it flipped in 2007. You know, when I talked about payback before, I've seen payback. I've done payback. I, I mean, I've been a staffer who's been in a room, and I was negotiating with Democrats, and the Republicans tried to come in, and I said, no, you're Republican, get out. I've done it. I, I, I can't say that that is a great thing for democracy. It's not. Payback is not democracy. Payback is petty. And what we've got to do is be able to overcome the payback and work together. And I say you have to work together. Because we have debt. We have responsibilities in this United States. And what I want you to learn here is that it's called leadership on both sides. Bullying doesn't work. It needs leaders. Carl Tubin, then Ellen Moore. I, I have to say something about the Tip O'Neill-Reagan relationship. They, Tip O'Neill went to the White House a lot during, his, during uh, the <coughs> Reagan presidency. <clears throat> they would sit down and they would talk about the issues and they would decide, okay, we're going to do this and this and this. And Tip would say, well, you know, now I have to go back and sell this to my people and we might raise some, some objections, we might raise some uh, hairs, etc. But in the end, I'll have them come together and we'll support and be unified. That unfortunately doesn't happen today. Alan Moore. Yeah, before we get carried away with this nostalgic good feeling about how things used to be, 
I'm reminded that in 1984, or in 1985 and 1986, I was the staff director of a Senate committee, the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. The Republicans had, had gained control of the Senate for the first time in a very long time when President Reagan was elected. Um, but the House, as Denise said, it had had the majority for about 45 years. It's nice, to, it's nice that, that Tip O'Neill and, and Jerry Ford had a good relationship. I think that's good for the country when they do. But don't for a minute think that Republicans in the House during that period had much to say about anything. And our experience, so we're the Republicans, we're in conference with the Democrats on major pieces of legislation. Who are we working with? The House Democrats and Republicans? No, the Republicans were never present. They would get a few little crumbs, but basically the Democrats were in charge. They were used to being in charge. They controlled the staff. They controlled the agenda. They, they made the decisions. Now, they had to deal with with the White House, with the executive branch, and I think it's terrific, and it was a good thing for the country that the personal relationship between Reagan and Tip O'Neill was good, but it was but it was those two. There was no Gerald Ford in 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 their conversations and so on. So that's part of what drove Newt Gingrich. I'm not his biggest fan, but I but I, I think when we think about his big turn um, and the ugliness and nastiness, it wasn't just because he was an ugly, nasty guy. It's because the Republicans were tired of not being real players in the House and of just getting crumbs. Congressman, last word before we go to break. I remember an instance in which I worked with my Republican ranking member and developed uh, a, a plan that had his total support <clears throat> and had a lot of other Republican support because they were allowed in to participate in the drafting of the legislation. And Bob Michael went home to his state in Illinois, and the governor of Illinois decided he didn't like the legislation. And Bob Michael came back that day and pulled the rug out from under Republican support. And I remember taking the floor of the House, and I may be the only guy who ever took the floor and criticized Bob Michael, who's a hell of a nice guy and, and well-respected. But I said, if you don't want me to work with this minority, because you're going to pull on it, then you tell me who I'm supposed to work with. Because I agreed with the Republicans, and they should have a say in it, but not when they double-cross you like that. So there, there are two sides to this story. Well, we're going to take a break real quick. When we come back, uh, we got a question over here from the audience. You're first up online. This is Backroom Politics Live from the main campus at American University in Washington, D.C. Hey! We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Back Room for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week without the famous Shelley's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelley's Back Room, it's not just for happy hours anymore. 
1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving, saving my love for you and you, especially you. Yeah. I know for certain the one I love. I'm through with flirting as you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that corner in a corner, don't go nowhere. And we're back here. We're back here live from the main campus at American University. You know, what, you know what really ticks me off about this crap? About half of the people in this audience left because they had 12 o'clock classes that they apparently have to go to. I got a better response out of the people that stayed than we did. <laughs> this is Backroom Politics live on Block Talk Radio. Uh, special edition live from American University in Washington, D.C. Don't do it again. Uh, we're going to continue our free-for-all where we have questions from the students here at AU. What's your name? Where are you from? Spencer Anderson. I'm from Oxford, Ohio. And, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Mike, um, it's more like I want your take on this is the scandals that Obama's administration has taken, like the NSA, the... Obamacare website and uh, IRS scandals and like I always hear the comments saying oh the president never knew and I'm like that to me that makes me feel like the president's losing control of his administration and I wanted your take on that. Let me paraphrase real quick the Obama administration have they lost control of the administration or is this just a general lack of leadership on behalf of the White House? I'm going to start with you Alan. Yeah, there's there's a lot here. Um, Real quick, no, the, the president can't know everything. He has to rely on the people around him to bring things to his attention. And I think some of the uh, some of the problems that he's trying to uh, explain away um, really were not brought to his attention in a timely way. What do you do about that? Well, you may have to sh- shuffle your staff. I don't know. He, He's got a bigger problem, though, I think, on the, the rollout of, of, of Obamacare, although it's, it's all related. And that is people believed he was really smart and competent and truthful. Obamacare has shaken the foundation of those things. Competence, this is a disaster. Um, and we haven't even, we're just trying to get in the door. We don't, we're not totally sure what's behind the door. We're just trying to get inside the system to figure that out. But as we learn more and more about cancellations, about, about hospitals not being included in, in policies, about doctors not being included in policies, there's, there's a lot of bad stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of people who could not get insurance who are now going to get insurance. That is a very good thing. Some of us don't think he went about it in the right way, but... 
But the bigger picture about Obamacare is it's not competent. His bigger other problem, though, is the whole question of truthfulness when he said, if you like your plan, you can keep it, period. If you like your doctors, you can keep them, period. And that is not the case. And it's pretty obvious that the White House knew that was an exaggeration. But Alan, let me just jump in real quick. When, when we talk about the president having control of his administration, I mean, not just with Obamacare. This is a free-for-all of other failures of leadership. Going back to the question that our yep. uh, friend here asked, what about NSA? You're talking about national security issues that are, by law, required to be briefed to the president and to congressional leadership. The president says he never knew about phone-tapping Andrea Merkel. Yeah, I'm not sure he ever denied knowing about the phone-tapping of Andrea Merkel. Um, if he denied that, if he, and if that was truthful, that's really amazing that, uh, that, that speaks to fundamental breakdown in the system. I don't remember him saying that. I think he just sort of skirted the issue because they realized that the very possible, small possibility of learning something useful was swamped by the embarrassment if this were to come out. Justin, Go ahead, Denise Crap. I, I, I want to focus on what Alan just said. It, the president is not going to be able to know everything. You know, as chief counsel of an agency that only had 700 people, you'd think that I would have known everything that was going on in that agency. I didn't. I was constantly surprised by people coming up saying, hey, did you know? And I'm thinking, I'm the chief counsel. How, how do I not know? And again, it was only a 700-person agency. So when you magnify that and you start talking about departments and you start talking about multiple departments, it doesn't surprise me that the president doesn't know things. And, and by the way, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, because I can start going back to the Bush administration and Hurricane Katrina and Michael Brown, and oh my goodness, wasn't that an interesting response? Uh, so it, it happens regardless, again, if you're a Democrat or a Republican. People, it's talking about information, and it, it's saying, you know, how much information do you push to the president, and, and when do you push it? It's a systematic problem within the executive branch, so I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as purely an Obama problem. I wouldn't say it's a Bush problem. I would say it's a systematic problem. And again, it happens to both Democrats and I'm Republicans. Gonna, I'm going to take off my moderator hat for a second because I've got to say this. Look, you are elected as a commander-in-chief, the chief executive of the federal government. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about particularly issues of national security, it is my belief that you should especially if you're talking about systems that are wiretapping Americans, wiretapping foreign leaders, let alone foreign leaders that are allies, these are matters of national security significance. There is a responsibility for the, for the president, whether he's got control of them or not, that still falls on him as commander-in-chief. I would holds, agree with you. He holds an inherent responsibility. I agree with that. you that it is the president's responsibility. It is his ultimate responsibility. But does the president of the United States have the ability to 24-7 know everything that happens in the United States? Absolutely not. Bob Hines. Uh, every administration has things happen that e either internally or externally that they cannot control. Uh, I don't think uh, the president knew that some of his people in the IRS were looking at the uh, fund the uh, the structure the structures of some of the fundraising that was going on and the way that the uh, the the, uh, the Republican organizations were not getting their their 
their exemptions from taxation. They could still raise funds. The Democrats were getting what they wanted. I, Benghazi. You, the president didn't know. Why, why, weren't, why wasn't there security there? It's on his watch, but he can't know that. He, he, there's no reason why he would know how many soldiers were available close by. Bob, there are all kinds of problems. You're talking problems. about the personal safety of your emissary, your ambassador, the highest-ranking U.S. officials and in that country. Don't you have a responsibility, especially with the turmoil that sure. happened in that country? Before? Sure, sure. The, the respo- you, you can always say the buck ends at the White House, but the fact of the matter is the buck was, was screwed up down below the White House, and nobody knew about it because that's the problem. It is, it's, it's, it, it's the, the, the bane of any administration. I can't know everything, and when something happens bad that I don't know about, and I go and look into my people who are supposed to know about it, they let me down. This, these things always, it, it's human nature. We got another question for the audience? What's your name? I'm Veronica Barger. I'm from Rancocas, New Jersey. Where's Rancocas? Is that like Secaucus, but with an R? No? Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. What's your question? I just wanted to bring up the topic of income inequality. I want to know how, how important is it, if it is at all, in your opinion, and also to maybe to balance it out if you find that it is important, how would raising minimum wage have an effect on income inequality? Income inequality. Is, it, is there a tie-in with governance in this country? Congressman Al, hold on. I'll go, I'll go. What, was, what was your last Minimum wage. Minimum wage. Minimum wage. Uh, Denise, I'm going to start with you. Absolutely. I mean, when you start looking at how much money is being dumped into political campaigns, it's being dumped in by a certain number of individuals who have a lot of money, and they're beginning to influence the campaigns in a way that somebody who contributes 5 or $10 cannot. So definitely on that perspective. On the minimum wage, yes. We've got to deal with that issue. We have to resolve it. You cannot live off of an income of you know, less than $10 an hour. The question is going to be, how do you balance earning more than $10 an hour with small businesses? We have to be able to provide small businesses the ability to pay individuals more than $10, but still at the same time be economically viable so they can continue to hire these individuals. And it's a solution that we have to work on together. But, you know, when we talk about, you know, Denise, you mentioned the idea of a few people influencing the elections, putting in all the money. That money, in some instances, I mean, you're talking about now labor unions. Labor unions take money from all kinds of people. Justin, the money you're talking about, labor unions are nowhere near the money that private businesses are beginning to put in. And not, not just private businesses, private individuals are beginning to support initiatives that are individual driven, and I completely understand that, but their money is so powerful right now, it outweighs the five and the ten. Give me an example. Give me a name. No, hold on, Denise, give me a name. Or, Alan? Yeah, it's, I don't think you have to challenge the notion. There are certain a lot of people who who are really afraid of the money sloshing around in politics. I'll just remind everybody that last, uh, that last election, there were hundreds of millions of dollars spent in races around the country by, by Republican-leaning groups that, that produced nothing. Um, but your question is, I think, well, really uh, on this question of inequality, 
um, and the minimum wage. Inequality is a huge problem in the country, but understand that people who are earning a minimum wage are almost certainly benefiting from a variety of other federal programs. They're probably getting food stamps. They may well be on Medicaid. If they're not on Medicaid, they're, they're likely to be able to get some kind of subsidized insurance uh, under Obamacare. They're, if they're older, they're probably getting Social Security and Medicare, both of which the benefits are skewed towards the lower end. Does that mean we don't have a problem? No, we do still. A minute, but the minimum wage is a small piece of the, the overall picture of, of income, and I left out the earned income tax credit, which is, which is tens of billions of dollars of, for lower wage earners. Um, and, and as Denise points out, on the one hand, it's tempting to say, give everybody 10, 11, 12, 15 bucks an hour, but it's really hard if you're a marginal small business to hire new people and pay them that kind of money. So you have to look at, look at the whole picture, even as we wrestle together in finding ways to deal with both inequality and our continued very high unemployment rate. Got another question from the audience here. What's your name? Where are you from? I'm Danielle Sisk again, and I'm from California. So I have a question specifically talking about raising the standard of living for low-income income individuals. I hear you're talking a lot about small business and the effects that increasing minimum wage can have on the small business, but I kind of wanted to point in the direction of what I know about the Republican plan, and I know that um, as far as it is right now, they're interested in the, the tax cuts that have already implemented, if that's correct. I believe that the higher earners are at 9% tax cut and the lowest earners are at a 2% tax cut. So in raising the minimum wage, I understand that there would be more disposable income to go around for the lower income individuals, but at the same time, I, wouldn't it raise the ship, if you will, so the people that are making 7 or $8 now, wouldn't they be completely out of jobs because they're still at that same $8, 7 an hour unskilled labor potential? Does that make sense? I, I, I think we get it again. Alan, why don't you not, take a shot? I'm not sure I got it, okay. so try, sorry. Try so basically what part I'm of asking... It's, it, part of it is I'm just having some trouble hearing. Okay. Yeah, this room oh. echoes. There, yeah. Come on up here and talk to us. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Come on, a little farther, a little farther. Yeah. Down this way a little bit. Okay, so yeah. what I'm asking is if you raise the minimum wage from where it is now, I think it's uh, 725 if you raise it to 9 I remember they wanted to raise it to nine dollars by 2015. Wouldn't you sort of kick out the people in between 7.25 to nine dollars that are making that money now? Because they would still be at that same unskilled level, if that makes sense. And then also pointing to the Republican direction, because I don't want to pick on the Democrats because I am a Democrat. But my question would be, what is the rationale behind the Republican idea of cutting the highest taxes for the highest income earners when they have a less propensity to spend than the people in the lower income. Uh, Alan, I want to start with you real quick. Sure. sure. Uh, the, 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 issue, the historic issue on minimum wage is if you, if you raise the wage at the bottom, then you put pressure on raising the wage of everybody else who's close to the bottom, and it has an inflationary impact. That, that's the conventional economist uh, view. So you always have to be careful. If you, are, you just, are you just generating a bunch of, uh, of inflation pressure and putting particular pressure on on small businesses, on certain regions of the country, on large employers, 
at, 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 at low wages, and, and might you end up hiring fewer people. On the taxes, when, and, and we, we have to remember, whenever you're messing with taxes, if you're going to raise them or lower them, you're going to raise them on the people who have income. So, so we can talk about tax cuts, but we right now have 47% of Americans who pay zero federal income tax. They pay Social Security and Medicare, for which they're going to gain rights. They pay sales taxes. They may pay some property taxes as part of their rent, but no federal income tax. And so uh, what we try to do with, with taxes is find a balance where we can encourage investment at the same time extracting money to pay for everything else government does. And it's a constant balancing act. Bob Hines. I saw some figures recently from the uh, Congressional Budget Office that indicated that uh, in the top 5% of the public, citizens, taxpayers, are, are, pay, are pay, paying 43% of the income taxes. And, you know, that's not a small amount. for That, you know, that, that says that they're, 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 they're putting a lot of money in. We have to find a system that works, and obviously it has to be fair for everybody. But it's when you have almost half of the, as Alan says, almost half of the population is are not paying federal income taxes because of their level of income, and they're getting the other benefits. They may not have a whole lot of ready cash in their pocket every week, but they're getting a lot of other benefits. And those things are even maybe more important than a little than another five dollars in your pocket, because those are things are taking care of food stamps. They're taking care of help for, for infants. They're helping. They're doing medical stuff. Those kind of things are really very important as well. It's a whole package you have to look at. We all have to look at it that way. Alan, it's, one minute. Yeah, just a, a quick thought on this on this 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 anniversary of of President Kennedy's death. He was the first supply sider. He decided to cut the top rates that were then in existence in America, and it was a big argument inside his administration. He was convinced that if we lowered the top rate, it would unleash some economic activity. We weren't in a recession. We weren't in a war. Um, and and his, the, the exercise had mixed results. But, the, but the, big, the biggest downside of it was it got America suddenly used to, to operating in deficit, having deficit spending outside of recession and outside of war. Your name and question. Uh, I'm P.T. Philbin from Connecticut again. Um, I have two questions. You could divide time between them as you like or just pick one or the other. Uh, my first question, it, it's more of a wondering about your input. It, it seems that, the, that certain parts of the government have, especially the executive branch, have gotten so bloated and overly bureaucratic ran that the president doesn't seem to know what's going on half the time. Like he didn't seem to know anything about the IRS. He didn't seem to know about the dysfunction, the dysfunction of, uh, of the Fast and Furious idea. So I would be interested to hear your response to that. And my second question is, how can we call the House of Representatives the more democratic of the two, of the two um, houses in Congress if the Republicans hold a firm majority, even though, even though over one million more people voted for Democrats for the House of Representatives, and it happened that way because of gerrymandering. Yeah, Al. Oh, no, yeah. no, yeah. we did not bring up the G word. Good Lord. Denise, 
I'm going to let you take this one first. Well, it, yeah, the government's become very big. Absolutely. And, and not only has it become very big, but it came, um, it grew over the past 10 years. After 9-11, we created a new department, and I helped do that. It was called the Department of Homeland Security. We created a new agency called the Transportation Security Administration, and that agency alone has 50,000 people. It's huge. So it's 50,000 that came out of TSA. Then we had a war, and we ended up hiring a lot of men and women, and those men and women went into active duty service. Then we decided that we needed support for them. We hired contractors, an incredible number of contractors. In fact, we, the majority of the folks that are working in IT and other places in the Department of Homeland Security are contractors. So yes, we need to reevaluate what's going on in the federal government. How do you manage a large system? And not only is it a large system now, but how do you manage all of the men and women that are going to be coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan? And how do you manage the fact that we aren't going to hopefully be in a war. So that is, a, that is something that people are going to have to look at and it's going to have to be an entire broad system review so that we can draw down in a way that is going to work. Because right behind all of that is an aging population where a lot more people are about to get Social Security benefits, so you've got an increase there. And you also have a large number of folks that are entering the VA system. So again, it's going to be putting a lot of pressure on, that, on the government. And speaking of an aging population, Congressman Al. <laughs> I, uh, Better you than me. Yeah, you're next, Hein. Yeah, we're the same age, so it's... Four months younger. <laughs> Big deal, you know. Ronald Reagan was not a president whom I thought was in close touch with all the details of his administration or program but it ran very smoothly. And what it leads me to believe is you're not going to make the federal government smaller, and a president can't know everything that's going on, but it does mean that you have to be very careful who you put in those positions. Reagan, one of the things he did that, that was very admirable is he hired some very, very efficient, effective administrators. And uh, so he was able to, you know, focus on the things he cared about, uh, ignore the other seven-tenths of, of what the government was doing, and get by scot-free. Uh, obviously, this president uh, has, I think, got some problems with, his, uh, with, with, with the people who are delegated to carry out uh, his programs. Uh, Alan Moore, 30 seconds. Uh, I totally agree with Al, and I think the point is that, that it, when you discover you don't have the right people, it's not that they're bad people or incompetent, they're just the wrong people, sometimes you have to fire them. And Ronald Reagan once fired a chief of staff. George, H. W. Bush, uh, George W. Bush fired uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. I mean, you sometimes have to let people go. I, I've predicted on this show that I think the Secretary Sebelius for all of her good works and all of her competence, has probably got to go. And she's probably one of the losers of the new filibuster rule because before the thought was, well, they won't get rid of her because they won't be able to confirm a new person. Well, now it'll only take 51. Watch out, Secretary Sebelius. Well, we're going to, be, we're going to let that be the last word. Real quick, instead of doing uh, Tell Me a Story today, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, we've got a, a chapel full... Full. Yay! 
down again. <laughs> We've got a chapel full of students here at AU. A lot of them are going to be future staffers on the Hill. A lot of them are going to be future lobbyists. Some might even be future elected officials. Hell, we might even have a future president in here or somewhat. Uh, in, in two minutes each, in a minute and a half each, <laughs> Quick piece of advice. Actually, if you can do it in 30 seconds real quick because I start to close down. 30-second piece of advice for everybody here about, how to, about anything you want to give them regarding political issues, government, or et cetera. Congressman, I'm going to start with you. You've got 30 seconds, and I'm going to time it. I think avoiding cynicism is terribly important. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to think they're cynics. They're all stupid. They're all drunk. They're all running around having sex with people they shouldn't be. That's not true. The vast majority of the Congress cares about issues, they care about getting something done, and they're behaving themselves. Don't become a cynic. Bob Hines, 30 seconds, go. Don't become ideologically driven. Keep your mind open. Republicans have good ideas. Democrats have good ideas. Even some Tea Party people might have a good idea or two sometimes. <laughs> and I'm a Republican, that's what I say. But the point is... Keep an open mind. Pay attention to what people are saying. Listen to what the members, the people are talking about who are running for office. And try to evaluate, not if which party they're in, but how much sense they're making. Denise Krep, 30 seconds, go. Go have coffee. Go have drinks. Go travel with your counterparts, regardless if they're a Democrat or Republican. The other thing I would do in saying this to be successful, play on your assets. Regardless of whatever you have and how different you are, play on your differences. And the reason I say play on your differences is because you want to show people that people who are different can still work together. Carl Tuvin, 30 seconds, go. Um, I would say get involved. You study, you learn, get involved in the system, get involved in politics, no matter Republican or Democrat. Go work for a candidate. Go play in the game. Alan, more 30 seconds. I know it's going to be yeah. tough for you, but 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So be careful of those who are absolutely certain of their position. Challenge everything. Be humble about how right you are. And then know that there are extraordinary rewards in public service. It's fun. You can make a difference. So do it. Did you just say be humble of how certain, how right you are? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You guys got to listen to this show every week. That's brilliant. Uh, folks, first of all, uh, you can download this show and play it back on your iPod, your iTunes. If you go to uh, backroompolitics.org, you can click on the player. It'll take you to Blog Talk Radio, which is our radio network. You can download the show. Play it for your friends at Christmas. You show them what kind of a rock star you are. Also, uh, I want to thank special guest Dr. Jeffrey Crouch and the rest of the team here at AU. Thank you very much for hosting us. I hope we did a good job. hope you enjoyed it. And now I'm going to take, a, I'm going to take moderator privilege and go a little Jerry Springer. Does anybody know who Jerry Springer is? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that you know. Bill Donahue? Who's he? Dead white guy. Come on. Uh, final thought real quick. I don't get a lot of opportunity here today to give my thoughts on it, but there is one thing that is in common. All of us come from different political parties. I got three Democrats and two Republicans. I'm a Republican. I'm a very moderate Republican. If anything, this proves that you can get along in Washington, D.C. It is possible. 
I may not agree with some of the things that they say. Hell, I might even agree with some of the things my Republican people say. But I can always know I can walk away friends and with respect. Keep that in mind. It can happen. So what does that mean? Take personal responsibility for how you're governed. Don't get your news bites through Daily Show or Colbert Report. They're not news. They'll be the first one to tell you. They're satirists. Don't get your information from them. Don't trust the 30-second soundbite. Do your own research. Figure out on your own who best represents you. Investigate the issues. And also get involved. You guys can get involved now. You guys can come from small towns or in big cities. Every town has community boards that you can be a part of, and they help drive governance to city council. Get involved with that. Get involved now. Get involved early. Because you know what? The view from the cheap seats isn't as good as it seems to be. But you can really get directly involved. If you take personal responsibility in the way you govern, you'll have more room to complain when things don't go your way. Again, this is Backroom Politics. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Krep, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore. Humility, really, Alan? That was great. I am your moderator, the Chris Christie looking like Justin Russell. We will be on Tuesday at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Have a great week. Good luck to you guys. Thank you for hanging around, too. That's, yeah. that's good. You, you, were, you were very, very good.